Thank you for joining us here at Prevail Church for this podcast. We hope this experience builds your faith and impacts your life. For more information about Prevail Church, visit us online at prevail.tv. Now let's tune in. That song that we sang a few minutes ago, I'm going to see a victory. The, the battle belongs to the Lord. Grace and that work has a lot to do with that song and whether or not I allow the battle to be his or if I try to take that away from him because I feel like I can do a better job at it. You know, we, we think about grace and, well, that is salvation, right? You know, for by grace are you saved. And for some reason, we often get the impression that it stops there. It's only half of it. It wasn't intended to, to be the end of it. We, we look at, we tie everything back to the garden, right? Page one of the Bible. And we say, Adam and Eve, God created this beautiful place. He created heaven and earth, and he created Adam and Eve, and he put them in the garden, and he didn't give them a lot to do. There weren't a lot of commands that they had to follow. They got to eat whatever they wanted except for this one tree. It shouldn't have been that difficult, and we were so depraved as humans, that we couldn't even follow one command that God gave us. And so through that, it plunged us all into this darkness and it destroyed this world that God had made. And so God, sometimes we, we, it seems like it was this last ditch effort Like, God had this beautiful plan, and we screwed it up. And so he had to scramble and find some way. So he looked around for an animal, and then, you know, you have sacrifices for sin. And then, finally, Jesus comes, and we... We have this impression often that like this was this was what it was just what God had to do to to stave off his wrath against us. You know, he had to come up with some way to withhold destroying and killing all of us because of our depraved nature and sin. We had nothing that he wanted. We had nothing to offer. He had to do that to keep from killing us. And he didn't always get that done. (laughs) Don't you know the battle belongs to the Lord? wasn't a last-ditch effort. It was never, it was never some mistake. It wasn't, it wasn't the type of thing that God had to scramble and figure out, what am I going to do to try to fix everything that they broke? We forget that before we were born God knew us before before that lamb had to die God knew it 
before Adam and Eve ate of the tree, God knew of it. Before he said, let there be light. And then he breathed into them. And they became a living soul. Before all of that, God knew what was going to happen. He knew the fruit they were going to eat. He knew you and I would be at prevail on this Sunday morning. And he decided to do it anyway. He had already planned for Jesus to be on the cross. That was the plan all along. It wasn't some plan B. He didn't have to search around and find something he could piece together to make it work. It was the plan all along. You, you were his plan all along. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8 says, Beware, lest any man spoil you or take you captive through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of man, after the rudiments or elementary philosophies of the world. And not after Christ. Not after Christ. For in him, in Christ, <laughs> dwells all the fullness or completeness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10 says, And ye are complete. In him, which is the head of all principality and power. The head of all. So in these verses, Paul is saying for all of the fullness, everything that God is dwells in Jesus and we are complete or made full in him do you see that you you have god and his fullness and that fills Jesus and we're complete in him that means all of the fullness of God is ours also complete Paul is talking to a group of people here. Put yourself, imagine, imagine what it must have been like to be living in this time, at this place. This is Colossae. Uh, Jesus had died 40 years ago. Colossae is a, a thousand miles away by land from Jerusalem, long way away. Most people wouldn't travel that far in a lifetime, so they, all, they could only rely on what they heard, you know. It was 40 years ago, <laughs> life expectancy then, nobody was there, not likely, given the distance, and this place was known. See if it sounds familiar to you. This place was 
of fusion of religious culture. There were a lot of different religions there to choose from. And as generations moved on, they ended up merging even some of those. So it would be easy to assume it was difficult to really figure out what you should believe. Because there was so much. And they were very well educated. They knew what they were talking about. When they talked about God, it made sense. It wasn't some, not always, some off-the-wall cult. Some of it made sense. And this missionary had gone out and started a church in this little town. And it wasn't a large church. It was in somebody's house. It was still small enough to be in somebody's house. This is not a mega church of Colossae. And it wasn't like when he got there and set up and started preaching to them and teaching them. It wasn't like Paul could send with him his login to access all of the library. <laughs> he couldn't give them reference materials or information they could download. It was all what they got from him. And all he had was what he got from Paul. It's a thin line for a group of people who were so consumed with education and philosophy. This is a thin line, and it requires an awful lot of faith if we're going to believe this. And so there, Paul is worried about them. He's worried that they're going, because of all of these people going around, one of the groups that was there were, uh, as you can imagine, a group of Orthodox Jews. They were familiar with Scripture, and they were struggling to reconcile before the cross theology and after the cross theology. They couldn't quite figure it out. And it wasn't like you could just pick up the phone and call Epaphras or Paul. Hey, forgot to ask when you were here. Couldn't do it. You had to try to figure it out for yourself. It's a scary place to be. So Paul writes to them, put yourself in Paul's place in prison. One of the few people in the entire world who actually knows what it means to be a follower of Christ and a, a Christian. Not a lot of people knew and even the disciples, the disciples of Jesus themselves had trouble figuring out how to reconcile this before the cross theology, what it means to be a follower or a believer before the cross and after the cross. And he had to help them figure this out. There was no New Testament they couldn't reference other verses or other books of the Bible. There, were, there weren't any. He'd written a couple of letters to other churches. He even told them at the end of this one, hey, see if you can get with Laodicea, swap notes. <laughs> because that's all they had. He's in prison. He can't even go visit them. This, Paul understands, is going to be their Bible. This is it. 
This is where we get into understanding who we are. Because if you were to condense the entire Bible into a letter to somebody, what would you tell them? Our Bible in one letter. Paul said, it's a dangerous time. I don't want you to feel bad for me because I'm in prison. But I'm in prison. <laughs> Think about me. That's <laughs> what he said. <laughs> Pray for me. I probably going to die here. But I want you to know that you're complete in Christ. Complete. ever felt incomplete? I have. <laughs> Happening right now. Thinking about trying to explain this concept definitely incomplete, made whole, you ever felt broken, full, ever felt empty, Paul said, I know it probably feels that way but you're not we talk a lot as Christians about what it means to be in Christ or for Christ to be in us <clears throat> we spend a lot more time talking about Christ in us not a whole lot of time talking about what it means to be in Christ. Because that's scary. How many of you? Let's see if we can unpack a little. I don't know. I was talking to Logan this morning. I don't, I don't know what order some of this is going to come out in. Usually, I have a very stringent outline that I end up following, and this is not that day. How many of you looked in a mirror before you came to church this morning? A couple of you. Some of you didn't. It's okay, you still look fine. <laughs> But we do before we go out often most of us <laughs> but why why do you look in a mirror to see yourself you know what you look like I mean I can look down at myself why look in a mirror We do it to see whether we are presentable to the audience we're going to be with. It wouldn't be the same if you were looking in a mirror before you go to the swimming pool 
as it would be Sunday morning when you're getting ready to come to church. The audience is different. I hope you're not wearing the same thing. But we try to see whether, it's, it, whether we're acceptable, whether what we are wearing looks okay. What do you see when you look at yourself in the mirror? I'll tell you what I see. Majestic beard. <laughs> but I also see things like, you know, I've, I've probably had too many cheeseburgers. Definitely had too many cheeseburgers. And I really haven't done enough exercises. That's something in my teeth. My glasses look a little bit crooked. Do I have one eyebrow higher than the other one? All of those, all those things. Anybody, am I all by myself? Do you guys, do, do you ever, when you look in the mirror, do you talk to yourself like that? We see things that maybe we like, but we see things that we don't like too. And we look at those and we may try to fix them. Some of them can be fixed. I could eat less cheeseburgers. I'm not gonna, but I could. <laughs> but there are some things that we can't fix. Maybe it's because they're too difficult. Maybe they take too long. Maybe we just don't want to, but they're not gonna get fixed. But even with that, we convince ourselves that what actually is in the mirror is not what we see. We do. We develop blind spots when we look in the mirror and we stop seeing things. I know this because have you ever seen a picture of yourself and gone, whoa, that can't be right? <laughs> yeah. It's no different than what we saw in the mirror. But we saw a different perspective, and now it's not the same. And we don't know what to do with that. Which one of those is real? Think about this, how you see yourself impacts how you think God sees you. How you see yourself impacts how you think God sees you. It doesn't mean it's right, but it feels like it is. You see, sin has perverted our perception of what God sees when he looks at us. And it keeps us from believing what he said about who we are. We, we tell ourselves things like, I am too, I'm too dirty and too damaged for him to want me. He must be disgusted when he looks at me. We say things like, he hates all of my sin. He must hate me because I can't separate myself 
from that. You must be angry with me all the time. I, I could have done better. Right? I, I could have done better. I wanted to do better. You must be so disappointed in me. We say things like, why would he want to be around me when I'm like this? He must, he must have to get away from me. Of course he has to get away from me. Look at me. Paul wanted these believers to know that what you see is not what God sees. And here's how he reconciled that. Two perspectives. One of those is Christ is in us. The other is we are in Christ. We talk an awful lot about Christ being in us, but not so much about us being in him and what that means. Matthew Henry said this, by this one word, complete, is shown that we have in Christ whatever is required in him, not when we look to him as if he were distant from us, but in him. We are in him. But that's what we feel, right? I feel like I have to look to him. I feel like I have to chase him and find him. We, we are in him. The Bible, what's the difference? What's the difference between Christ being in us and us being in him? The Bible has a lot to say about that. And rather than go through all of those, let me explain it this way. If we were only to experience Christ in us and never experience being in Christ, it would be a little something like this. The Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. Well, I mean, one, one day we're going to be. Right now we're just engaged. It says that we are the children of God. But I'm kind of the black sheep of the family. Right? It says we are adopted. So, I, I mean, I wasn't really intended to be part of the true family. We can cry, Abba, Father, as long as you've talked to him every day and you go visit him and you confess all of your sins and you've done everything right for the past 30 days. Go ahead, call him. Be all we have. We're accepted, but only like that garbage that gets accepted at the recycling plant. He took something horrible, and I mean, he'll try to make something out of it. We're beloved, but we're not treasured. We're citizens of heaven, but only second class. It's what it would be if we could not experience life in Christ. That's the difference. Paul was afraid 
that these believers, these were not unbelievers he was writing to. These are people of the church, believers. He was afraid that they would be influenced to compromise. To compromise the work of Christ and minimize it. They were trying to say that yeah, even though we've accepted Christ as the Messiah, there's still a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of stuff that we need to do as good believers. And if we don't see these things, then you are not a good believer and you don't really belong to him. Does it sound familiar at all? We think of, you know, compromise goes two ways, right? We think of compromising as becoming uh, lax in your beliefs or uh, moving more toward the way of the world. But it also means not giving Christ his rightful place and the work that he did for us, a position of power that it deserves. We've heard a lot these past six weeks about Jesus dying for us on the cross and all of those things that I see about myself that disgust me being with him there because all of my sins were future sins. Somehow... We understand what it's supposed to mean. It's just difficult to believe. Right? We've heard about it for six weeks. I tried to figure out as I was struggling with what to say and, and how to present these verses. I, I struggled to understand why it was so difficult. And last night, it hit me. It's because I don't believe it. I know it. I understand it. Just don't believe it. They didn't believe it because they didn't know what it meant for Christ to die for them. I don't believe it because it feels dangerous. It feels dangerous because it's not what I'm used to. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's scary. Of course, I look all through the Old Testament, and of course, every sin had to have a sacrifice. Every crime had to have a punishment. There was a correlation, one-to-one. -one. But Jesus... Somehow paid for all of my sins? Okay, I get when I didn't understand, right? But now I do, so what about moving forward? Those two. But I feel like I need to do something to show that I'm sorry. And I feel like I need to do something to pay for it. I did something wrong. I need to pay for that. I'm not giving Christ 
his rightful place. I am denying the power of what he did on the cross for me because of my own selfishness. I can't come to terms with him being the payment for me. And so I rationalize it. Well, if he, okay, but he paid for it, but it must affect our relationship and how we are together. That is where it is. That's what I need to fix. I need to tell God I'm sorry so that he will understand that I'm sorry and he can forgive me. But he did. He did. Maybe like this. Let's say that Fred had an absolutely horrible day, awful day at church. And he just reached a point where he couldn't deal with it anymore. And he got out to the parking lot and he cr- uh, Will Smithed my car. I feel like if somebody watches in 10 years, it'll still make sense. And he breaks my windshield. He knows that he did something wrong. He knows that he shouldn't have done it. He knows how I'm going to feel about it. But he doesn't want to talk to me about it. What's that going to do to our relationship? Am am I going to feel some kind of way toward Fred about my car? Absolutely I am. Of course I am. What is wrong with you? And you are not even man enough to come and talk to me about it when you know what you did was wrong? But examine why I feel that way, right? I feel that way for one, because it's not what I've come to expect from our relationship. The relationship that he and I have, it's different. Also, I was surprised. I didn't know he was going to go out and hit my car. I don't know if he's going to do it again. And I got to figure out... When am I going to make the time to get this thing fixed? Somebody's going to have to work on it. It's probably not going to look the same as it did before. And I got to pay for it. We're going to have words. But imagine... And I use this illustration because it's, it's what makes sense to me, and I hope it makes sense for somebody else. Imagine if I knew that that was going to happen all along. I knew he was going to mess up my car. I knew that he wasn't going to talk to me about it. I knew that I was going to have to fix it. I knew that whether he'd ever do it again or not, I knew all of those things before I ever introduced myself to him. I knew it. Now imagine further that my windshield had already been paid for And that I had already forgiven him. Then, after all of that, it's nice to meet you, Fred. I'm Jason. How do you think I'm going to feel when he messes up my car? I'm not going to feel any kind of way. 
Because I knew about it all along before we ever met. I had already decided to forgive him. I had already made a way for the payment to be made. There was nothing left to do except wait for the day from his perspective because it had already happened by the time I said hello. God has never once been surprised or upset or angry at you. How could he be angry with you when he made you and knew your day one from your last? All of the things that were going to happen in your life, how could he be angry with you? Before I formed you in the belly of your mother, I knew you and the plans that I had for you. I can feel unloved if I want to, but I'm not. I can feel dirty and disgusting if I want to, but I'm not. I can feel far away from God, but I'm not. He doesn't have to wait for me to come running to him because I'm already in him. Where am I going to run? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. This was... Paul's message to the church. Christ existed before everything. All of those other gods that you're hearing about and that you guys are discussing, Christ existed before them. Christ is everything. Christ did everything. Whether you believe it or not, whether you practice it or not, he did. Paul said, you don't have to understand it. You don't have to try to figure it out. It's just how it is. That Christ, that all of the fullness of God dwells in that Christ lives in you and will change you. No way around it. That Christ lives in you and you are going to change if he does. But <laughs> you live in that Christ. That one. You live in him and you don't have to change. You are close to him and loved by him regardless. This is where it's easy to say, but, well, but there are things that we're supposed to do as Christians. Who said there weren't? That Christ, if you, depending on your experience with church over the course of your life, that last line may have triggered you. But in order for that to trigger you, you'd have to diminish the line that was above it. Well, what do you mean I don't have to change? I already said you would. That's why it feels dangerous. It's scary. We think it can't possibly be true. He 
You think the life of faith stops when you accept Christ? Do you understand? You think faith stopped when you accepted Christ? And now that you're saved, there's no more faith in what he did and what it means for you now. It's only, it's like there's this gap, right? And like he made it so, believing in him makes it so that I don't go to hell. So we're done. The only other faith I need is when I need him to do something. And then I believe that he will do that for me. It's so much harder to have the faith that it takes to believe that you right now are righteous. It's hard to let go. It is, it is hard to let go. We struggle just like they did. We struggle with the doctrine of perfectionism. In order for me to be a good Christian, I have to be perfect. Well, are you ever going to be perfect? No. Well, one day. Put your hand out. <laughs> but we struggle with that. Perfectionism. It's what... It's, I get it, Jesus, you died so that I could be righteous, but I still have work to contribute. And so when it comes to salvation, it's all you, you got it. But for everything else, I still have things to contribute. It's still partly mine. If any of you are familiar with Brene Brown, um, she said, perfectionism is not the same as striving to be excellent. It's a defense mechanism. Because working to avoid mistakes is not the same as trying to be the best you can be. All it will do is lead you to paralysis because you're more focused on not doing things that you shouldn't do. And you're not paying attention to stepping out and trying to do things that you should do. Because we know that we cannot do things, but it's scary again. And sometimes we need help from somebody who isn't us in order to do those. You want to love your neighbor like yourself? You're not going to be able to do it by yourself. You want to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and spirit? You're not going to do all of that alone. It's scary because we can't guarantee. It, 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 there's a risk there. We can't guarantee that it's going to get done. And we're even probably going to admit to ourselves that there are times where it's absolutely not going to get done. So it's easier to just try to be perfect and avoid doing the bad things. We can 
God, God doesn't want that, that, that. Put that up there. God doesn't want you to be more focused on what you should not do than you are with what you should do. It's, it's easy to wrap our, our minds around all of that being the Christ who saves us in him. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's easy to believe that one day we'll be presented holy and blameless and above reproach, but it is very difficult to understand that we are now. Christ wants us to understand that we are made whole now. It is only the enemy that wants us to continue to be broken. Charles Spurgeon said, you know, it, it seems there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of talk about this kind of topic and this, this sort of theology being new. These grace preachers, these new grace preachers. Charles Spurgeon said, he need not have any more fear. For he who has had his sins washed away in the Savior's blood need not have any remorse for his sins. For they are pardoned through the Redeemer. It's not new. That was 1857. Look at Colossians 1, and I'm winding down here. Colossians 1, 12. Your hearts can soar with joyful gratitude when you think of how God made you worthy to receive the glorious inheritance given freely to us by living in the light. I want you to look at the same verse. This is how the King James has it. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance. We don't see that word often anymore. It means made suitable. He's made us suitable. There's another place in the Bible where this word occurs. It's in Genesis. May not be there. I'll read it to you. And the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. Same word, suitable. What that means is that God, after watching Adam in the garden, executing the responsibilities that God had given him, said, you know, it's not good that he should be by himself. And if I'm going to make something, you better believe I'll be able to look back at it when I'm done. And I wish you could read tone in the Bible, but I don't think he said it, it was good. I saw it, and it was good. I want to imagine that he said, Ah, oh, that's good. 
some sort of emotion. <laughs> and he saw Adam and said, I want to make him somebody that's perfect for him, that fits together with him just like they should in the best possible way. So I'm going to make him a help meet for him. To exact specifications. God the Father has made us meet for the inheritance suitable to exact specifications. There's nothing lacking, there's nothing missing, there's nothing broken, nothing damaged, nothing out of the way. God looked at it when he was done and said, that is good. You think you're different than Adam and Eve and he somehow wasn't able to look at you anymore and say you were good? Of course he does. You are his creation. I think that's taking it a little far. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He recreated us to be in the exact specifications it would take for us to be perfect and holy and unblameable in his eyes. Don't you dare tell him it wasn't good enough. Don't you be swayed by anybody else who would try to tell you. There are enough people in this world that are going to tell you you're not good enough for whatever it is. Maybe you're not smart enough or pretty enough. Or maybe you just aren't the right fit. And if nobody else tells it to you, you'll try to tell yourself. Don't you dare say that you are not the right fit for God because he has recreated you. And to do that would be to tell him that what he created was not good. He ended up in Colossians 2, go there, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He went through all of that and we're so quick to say, it was my sins that nailed him to the cross. Aren't we? You want to talk about a high opinion of yourself? wasn't your sins that nailed him to the cross. He got up there all by himself, just like they, he and his father had been planning since before we were created. It was nailed to the cross with him. The work that he did, what he suffered on the cross, don't try to pull that back down off of his cross? Did he pay for it or did he not? Are you going to try to tell him that his payment wasn't good enough? That there's still a little left on the bill? You are valuable. What would make 
God choose something like that? You think he would choose to create you, understanding the consequences and implications if you weren't valuable, if you were just garbage? Do you think if you were just filthy, no good, depraved garbage that God would make a choice like that to create you just so he would go through those things? We're not victims. Jesus was not a victim. Victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Lastly, Colossians 3, your crucifixion with Christ has severed the tie to this life. This is how Paul ended with them. Your crucifixion with Christ has severed the tie to this life, and now your true life. What's left here to be done? Now, your true life, it's already there, is hidden away with God in Christ. And as Christ himself is seen for who he really is, who you really are will also be revealed, for you are now one with him in his glory. What does it mean to be in Christ right now? Not waiting for it right now. Who are you right now in Christ? John 15 says, we are branches connected to the true vine, which is Christ. We are friends of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, we are reconciled, are reconciled, not waiting to be. Romans 8 says, we are adopted. Galatians 4 says, we are sons and daughters. Ephesians 2 we are members of God's house. Galatians 4, we are heirs through God with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, we are become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 1, we are holy and blameless. Ephesians 2, we were strangers and aliens and now are citizens with the saints. Colossians 3, we are beloved. 1 Thessalonians 1, we are brothers loved by God. Romans 8, we are more than conquerors. Ephesians 2, we're his workmanship. 1 Peter 2, we're chosen and called. Chosen. 1 Corinthians 12, we are his body. Ephesians 2, we are created new. First Corinthians 3, we are God's temple. How holy is that? Colossians 2, we were dead, and now we're alive. We're alive and forgiven. Don't keep living like you're dead. Didn't you spend long enough that way? Understand what he has done for you because he loved you. Not because he had to. Not because it was the only way that he could somehow fix all the things that we screwed up. But because he loves you. We are beloved. We are his treasure all of these things why do you think it would be so difficult for Paul and the other disciples of Jesus to figure it out they argued back and forth and couldn't even God had to send Peter himself a vision to help him understand this is a new day 
You are a new person. Your relationship with me that you thought you had is not the one you actually had. You looked in the mirror and you saw somebody that wasn't good enough. You saw somebody that needed to be fixed. Somebody that needed something to make them right. And it wasn't that God was enough. There were things that you had to do in order to make yourself better. And he said, Peter, eat it. Oh God, I can't. I can't do that. That would wrong. There's a commandment, you know, and I have, you, you're probably familiar. There's a commandment that says I shouldn't eat that because it's unclean and it would make me unclean. God said, no, Peter, you're already clean. It's what I've been trying to tell you. the apostles tried to get people to understand all the examples they used how many more ways do we need to hear it or are we going to still say that it's scary and I still feel like there's got to be something that I have to do wasn't good enough. You're good enough. You're clean. You are good enough. He made you that way. Thank you for joining us here at Prevail Church for this podcast. We hope this experience builds your faith and impacts your life. For more information about Prevail Church, visit us online at prevail.tv. Now let's tune in.